what is an elevator pitch? No, okay. <laughs> no. Hey, Andy, come on in. We've got a seat with it, metaphorically with your name on it right back there. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 10. This is Paul's elevator pitch of the gospel. This is Paul's elevator pitch to the gospel. I am, uh, <clears throat> let's see, Niall, you got a stopwatch on you? Or oh, on your phone? Yeah, pull up a stopwatch app. I'm going to read this at a fairly normal pace. It should be about one minute, okay? This is, if you want to know the gospel in one minute, here's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. This is Paul's elevator pitch, okay? You ready? You are dead, though, through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and our senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Stop it. How, mo- how long was that? 59.37. I told you about a minute, right? About a minute. The gospel in one minute is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And we're going to break it down this morning for you. If you are the kind of person that likes to like, write and highlight in your Bible, whether you've got it on your phone or tablet or actual Bible, here's how this breaks down. Okay, look at verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 form a short little unit right there. This is our spiritual status before knowing Christ. Before knowing Christ. Essentially, spiritually, we are dead. Anyone who does not know Christ is spiritually dead. And it's verses 1 through 3. That's what Paul uh, mentions there. Then in verses 4 through 7, that's the second short section in this passage, God offers salvation. So even though you were dead, by the way, can dead people do things? No. (laughs) Dead people cannot do things. Okay. Dead. (laughs) So I've heard. Yeah, so I've heard. So I've heard. Okay, okay, okay. This this group is always a little, this group is always a little salty, and I like it. I'm here for it. Thirty second elevator speech. Yeah. Can dead people do anything? Oh, uh, but God offers salvation. Okay. So verses one through three, you are spiritually dead. Verses 4 through 7, but God offers salvation. It's God's initiative. Verses 8 through 10 are God's purpose in redeeming us. That's the three sections. This, uh, this beautiful statement here, this gospel in one minute, breaks down into three sections right there. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 7, and verses 8 through 10. All right, so last week we talked about 
The idea of worldviews. What is a worldview? What's a worldview? And that's not when you zoom out really big on the map. There's no definite truth. Well, that, that's an example of a worldview. I'm asking, what, what is a worldview? Just what, what is, when, we hear, when you hear the word worldview. It's a framework on how you view issues. Yeah. It's a framework on how, when you hear an idea or a statement, it comes in and you understand it based on the, your beliefs and your understanding of facts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so what Sean was saying is an example of one of those many kinds of worldviews that we can find in the world today. The Christian worldview is this, that God created a good world, populated with humans, but human rebellion led to the world's corruption by sin and death. God's ultimate act of deliverance and redemption came through Jesus, who absorbed the power of death and defeated it by being raised to eternal life. And the good news is that God has done this through Jesus, and He offers this salvation to everyone. All those evil spiritual forces still oppose God's rule. God's final victory is coming soon. Amen? Amen. And that's the Christian worldview in about 15 seconds. Not as eloquent as Paul's Christian worldview in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, but it gets the job done. This is the Christian worldview. Every single, you know, obviously I you know, truncated some of it. But every single thing I mentioned here is something that we find in these verses in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3 here, okay? Verses 1 through 3, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince or the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work among the uh, sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, take a look at verse 1 here, Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. How did this happen? How did that happen to us? Fell in the garden. Mike takes it all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, that's right. Genesis 3. Fell in the garden. We chose not God. We chose something other than God. We chose our own way, right? Rather than God's way. Yeah? There's a feeling of dirtiness, of uncleanness before you know Christ. Yeah. You know, the night I was baptized, so clean that this day, just uh, hard to describe, and don't always have that feeling. But sure. <laughs> but yeah. it's definitely had it that night that it was uh, a, a washing away, as the Bible says, and, uh, that was because I knew that I was a sinner. Yeah. And that, when I was convicted of the fact that I was a sinner, that was the beginning of. Christian, you had to know the bad news. Yeah. The good news. Yeah. Mike, I like how you how you put that. That you had to learn something about your condition. 
you had to learn something about your condition. I, th I think, and maybe this is true in, in your life, uh, or maybe this is true in the lives of those uh, around you, your loved ones. Chances are that probably some of us have gotten ourselves into situations, maybe even gotten ourselves into sinful situations just because we were ignorant, right? Maybe you didn't grow up going to church, okay? Or maybe you had some church affiliation, right, but it didn't really matter to you, right? You went just a couple times a year, right? And so you, were, you might have been ignorant. You genuinely might have been ignorant about what God expected. But probably some of us in here might have known perfectly well what God expected for us, right? And we didn't want to do that anyway. We rebelled. We made a choice. We made a choice. What's the difference in verse 1 between trespasses and sins, or is there a difference? Charles, you asked earlier if we were going to quibble today. We are going to quibble, sir. <laughs> we're going to wrestle. We're going to wrestle with what these words mean. Is there a difference between trespasses and sins? Yeah, trespassing is when you're breaking the law. Mm hmm. Sin, you're going to commit it by breaking the law, you've committed a sin against God. I, I think I see the difference that you mean there, Gene. Anybody else? I would look at the transgression. You actively did. Actively did it, yeah. You, you've done something wrong, but you can also sin by not doing what you're supposed to do. So sins of commission versus sins of omission. That's fair. Intentionality is what Rory says. Would y'all generally agree with that? I'm just curious. Which one does that go with, Rory? Trespassing would be intention. If, if, I, if, if you're trespassing against something, you know that you shouldn't be there and you continue forward. As, as Paul uses the word here. Yeah. Okay. Mike, you want to offer some friendly pushback? Uh, I, I view transgression as when, you, when there's a pattern that you're doing that's against that is sin, but you're not really clearly aware of it. And oh, interesting. And okay. sin is one where you are. I'm not bickering. It's a different. So you would just switch the terms then. An example. An example would be when I first started studying the Bible. Me, Christian, 19 years old, and uh, I was in the habit, as so many guys are, of doing the friendly insults. Uh, you know, saying insult somebody to show you they're you're their friend. Yeah. That's very common. And I was doing it, and the Bible screams not to do that. Mm -hmm. In the scriptures, I was reading about building each other up, and I made a, it was hard, a vigorous attempt to change how I acted, because it was a transgression. I didn't understand it before, but recognized it, that I was sinning, but it was something I didn't recognize and understand, and it allowed a it took effort to change that pattern and try to encourage people instead. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I think as the, uh, Katie, was that a hand or was yeah, that a, so okay. The definition says an act that goes against a law, rule, or code of conduct. For a transgression or a trespass, yeah. I, I, I think we're all touching on generally the same thing here. We might say we might differ on which word does this go with trespass or, or sin uh, by the way in verse one the first term appears to be a more specific term um my translations that i have up here say either trespass or transgression do any of y'all say anything different for the first item all seem to say 
all the same thing. Okay. So there's, sin, there's a lot of overlap here. Sin is the transgression of God's law. Yes. Yes. Whether intentional or unintentional, I think that's what Paul is uh, driving at here. The willful rebellion versus ignorance. Versus ignorance. Ignorance perhaps because you are spiritually dull and deadened in your state. Look at verse 2 here. Uh, before we move on to verse 2, the point of verse 1 then is to say, do either to your rebellion and or your ignorance, your spiritual status was the same regardless. You were spiritually dead. And you were spiritually dead because you were following this person mentioned in verse 2. Who is the ruler of the power of the air or the prince of the power of the air in verse 2? Uh, show of hands if you think it's the devil. Okay. I think it is. The New Testament never shies away from the fact that spiritual evil and its uh, effects are real. The New Testament never shies away from the fact of spiritual evil and its real effects on human beings. Something that Paul returns to later in Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 11 and 12, when he says, Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Jewish and Christian mindset of the ancient world was that there was real spiritual evil that operated in the heavenly places, in the heavenly world, and that affected and influenced actual people and events and governments and systems here on earth. And a quick trip through world history should <laughs> illustrate that pretty clearly. Or five minutes on the news today. The New Testament never shies away from this. It might seem, some people might think that's odd or peculiar. It's like that the big bad guy is a red guy with a pitchfork and a spiked tail. It's like, and that's a cartoon. That's a cartoon. And that's not really what the Bible presents. When the Bible does present Satan, and it's very clearly Satan, He's presented as this cosmically large red dragon that's so vicious and violent that he can sweep away a third of the stars in the heavens in Revelation 12. And that it takes the hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven, in vicious combat to defeat him. And his defeat is that he's not slain entirely, he's just thrown down to earth. And that affects all of world history. Yeah, the goofy little devil cartoons are insignificant. You can laugh and mock those if you so choose because that's not our real enemy, right? Our real enemy is much more vicious, much more uh, cunning than that. And the Christian worldview is that this entity is powerful but not all powerful, right? Some people like to present like there's this great struggle between God and the devil as if those two are equally powerful. And that's simply not the Christian worldview. That God has already won the final battle 
Exactly. Exactly. There's a book called The City of God by Augustine, mm -hmm. written during when the pagan tribes were sweeping over the Roman Empire. And it's probably it's, it's not a simple read, but it's probably the best discussion of the presence of evil in spiritual and how that we're still winning to the spiritual uh, allegiance to mm -hmm. God. It doesn't mean you can't have, I mean, horrible things happen. Yeah. Horrible things happen, and they did. They had these pagans would go through and sweep and you know, destroy and kill and all sorts of things. Yet he understood and explained about the ability to trust God even when you're having this physical disaster. Yeah. That's instructive I think for us today. I, I do not want to see my home overturned and overrun by those who hate me because of what I believe. But even if that does happen the church has endured. Mm -hmm. The church has endured a there lot. Come a day. Mm -hmm. Sure. With Come a day where our, we'll lose our property here. That could happen. I could. See, there are people, prominent yeah. people in the culture that want to do exactly that. Yep. And we need to recognize that we, even if that happens, we're still faithful to God. Yeah. In verse four, Paul moves from this description of our spiritual death and then he um, he describes how it's uh, it's God's initiative there in verse 4 take a look at verse 4 what specific attributes does does God or what specific attributes of God does Paul mention here in verses uh, in, in verse 4 love and mercy here's the thing do we do we show mercy to someone when we are being beaten or do we show mercy to someone when we have the upper hand? As when we have the upper hand. That's when it's our prerogative to show mercy. Like when you actually have the upper hand, when you're actually winning or are about to win, then you can show mercy. And verse 5 is when God showed us his mercy. Take a look at what he says here in verse 5. That even though you're dead in, our, in your trespasses, again, that Paul uses that particular term there, you were dead in your rebellion. You were dead in your intentional violation of God's good world. That's when he made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace that you've been saved. It's by grace that you've been saved. What is grace? What is grace? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. I hear that a lot. That's a good way to put it, Gene. You don't earn it. That's right. Ooh, that's good. You can't earn it. It's not like you can work your way up to it. Because then it's not grace, right? It's wages. Paul does say something about the wages of sin. What is that? It's death. That's right. You've earned that. 
If you want to earn something from God, congratulations, you have earned death because of your rebellion, because of your participation in the corruption and perversion and destruction of His good creation. That's what you've earned. But guess what God has given freely? Grace. I wish Jesus would have stayed in here long enough, but hey, buddy, if you're listening on the recording, this is for you, okay? <laughs> this uh, Greek word here for grace, I want us uh, all to say this here in verse 5. It's charis. Charis. Can you say charis? Charis. Yeah, grace. In Greek or English? In Greek? <laughs> well, um, in, in English, you would write it C-H, uh, with a hard C-H, like a, like a German Bach. Uh, C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis. This Greek word has the connotation of a gift. So, Mike, when you said gift earlier, this Greek word, it, it means something like unmerited favor, right? But we know how words have multiple meanings, okay? Another meaning of this word grace is the word gift. But it's the kind of gift that has some kind of obligation attached to it. To use the gift properly. To use the gift properly. The way it was intended to be used, right? Okay, so here's a good example. Human sexuality is an amazing gift from God, but isn't there... Aren't there ways to use that properly and ways to use that improperly? Okay, yes, yeah. Don't need to go into any detail about that, all right? Take another example. Firearms. Okay, you get the idea. A car? Yeah, okay, all right. We can just list off a bunch of things. Even your money? Right, okay. Gifts that are freely given. Well, maybe not money. <laughs> Maybe not money, all right, but gifts that are things that are freely given. There's an expectation. Yes, sir. Depending on how much that gift costs, sometimes we, as recipients of those gifts, place a different value, not only on the gift itself, but the giver of that gift for what they had to sacrifice to give it. Just like, in this case, the ultimate sacrifice was Jesus, who was
that was a very, you, know, you can't help but feel that, or you go to the Vietnam Wall, I go there and I take my shoes off hmm. when I go through there. Yeah. Very, very humbling. Yeah. Same with the Alamo. There's an obligation attached to those gifts that's we, that we've been given. Mike, if you keep making good points like that, I, I'm going to have you substitute teach class, okay? No, you don't. <laughs> 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 and we have a responsibility yes, to, you know, to use the gifts. My daughter, when she was in high school, we gave her a car. That, that was more to our benefit than hers because then she could take herself to school. Sure, yeah. But Deborah, you're driving too close and too fast. Ever you're driving too close to too fast, you know where this ends. She rear-ended a suburban with with a Ford Escort, and the, <laughs> oh, no. the Escort was all crunched up, and the suburban had a scratch on the bumper. Yeah. And but she didn't. It was ruined, ruined car, and she didn't get another one because uh, she didn't use the gift properly. And yeah. We have an obligation to use the gifts that God gives us, and sometimes we don't do it right. Uh, Maybe he takes them away for a while. I'm not talking about salvation, but... Right. Salvation. Yeah. Other things. Yeah, very true. Verse 5. This grace that we've been given. Given at the right time. Clay, an, an astute observation there. Um, Paul is saying that you were dead. And, and dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't do anything. But look at what he did, that because of his extraordinary love, verse 4, and because of his rich mercy, verse, in verse 4, that even though you were dead, even though you didn't earn this, right, you couldn't earn it, couldn't earn it, don't deserve it, that God... He made us alive together with us. I love this word that he uses here. This is a compound word. He's got, this, uh, he's got a, a preposition, the preposition with, attached right to that verb, made alive. This is an odd word in, in Greek, that he made us alive together with Christ. And the whole focus of this section here, verses 4 through 7, the whole focus of this section is on God's activity. right? Because you might look at this and say... You know, well, hey, what, where's baptism in here? It's like, well, you know, he gives a pretty good description of baptism in another letter. The point of this section is on God's activity. On God's activity. You were dead, and he made us alive together with Christ. It's by his gracious favor. It's by his unmerited favor. It, it's, it's not that you earned this or bought this. That might sound that might annoy some of us who don't like being given handouts, right? We like to earn that promotion. We like to earn that raise. We like to earn the good things that we've get, been. We like to earn the good things that we have because that shows, right, that we're hard workers, that we're you know industrious, that we, and it can, it shows control and ownership. Yeah, humbling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Allowing other people 
to exercise their gift of encouragement is um, is humbling. But if you're genuinely hurting and in need, guess what? God has prepared a whole church for you to be in and to let them heal you and to let them hurt with you and encourage you because you're not alone you're part of a body right and if a member of the body if a body part leaves the body it begins to wither and die take a look at verses uh, 8 through um, one more thing about verse 6 I don't know if you know this speaking of isolation believers here in verse 6 have been raised up with Christ and have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So there's a couple of things that are happening here. Paul's using some spatial language. You know, there's the realm of earth, right? Thinking in an ancient mindset. There's where humans live and operate. Under that is the realm of the dead, whatever that looks like, whether a pagan worldview on the world of the dead or a Christian or whatever. It's under that is the world of the dead, then where you have humans operate, and then above that in what is called the air, in verses 1 through 3, that's where you have a lot of spiritual forces operate. High and exalted above that is who? God. God. Who is seated at God's right hand? Christ Jesus. Where are we in verse 6? Right there with him. The Christian life is so much more powerful than just, well, I hope I'm good enough to be saved. Guess what? You're not. (laughs) You're not. Because it's a gift. Because it's a gift. You were made alive together with Christ. That wasn't something that you did. It's a passive verb that means the subject receives the action of the verb. I teach a Greek class. I'm grading Greek exams right now, okay? (laughs) There's a lot of grammar up here. But it's something that happens to you. That's right. It, you're made alive together with Christ. You're raised up with Him. And then look where you are in verse 6. You're seated with Him in the heavenly places. The, the, the power available to each and every Christian to overcome sin and destruction is extraordinary. It's cosmically significant. Because it's God's own power through Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? You are not alone. You are there seated with Christ. You're not isolated. Good way to put it, Gene. And then in verses 8 through 10, we'll wrap up with this. Verses 8 through 10. Paul mentions the purpose of all of this. The purpose of this extraordinary gift that's been given to you. The purpose of of your status in Christ. Yes, you're a sinner saved by grace. But if you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, if you're seated next to the king, by the way, did anybody... I didn't, because I'm an American. But did anybody watch the coronation of 
Of, okay, okay, all right. So maybe you didn't. If you heard about that guy across the pond, to be seated next to the king is a pretty important thing, right? Brothers and sisters, where are we seated? Next to the king. There's a reason for that, though. And it's not so you can just ride off in the sunset and make it to heaven one day, which is nice, but it's hardly all that there is, right? Verses 8 through 10 explain the purpose of why you have been seated with Christ. It's God's gift. In verse 10, we're His workmanship. Uh, Maybe a more poetic way to put this would be His masterpiece. That you're created in Christ Jesus for these, for these good works, the, the point here is not that, not that you know, your good works save you, of course not, but that you're created to do the work of God for His, for his pleasure, which is always good. Joe, give us a quick, quick, quick statement, and I'm going to wrap us up with a quote. Yeah. Okay, the seated part mm-hmm. means that it's done. It's done. It's done. Seated. So because when, you're, when, when you see someone seated, and what, whatever they were going to do or were supposed to do is done. So I like that. Finished. I like that. Good works, this is a quote from a professor of mine. Good works flow from what God does in us rather than God's work in us flowing from our works. God redeemed Israel before he gave them the commandments. And did not choose them because of their righteousness. It was always his purpose for good works to flow from his grace. God has redeemed you and me for a purpose. And that purpose is the good works in verse 10. Another way to to translate this idea of good works is godly works. The kind of work that God himself would do. And guess what? If you're seated with Christ, he's given you the power to do what he's called you and me to do. And that should be really comforting. Thank you all very much, guys. Y'all are dismissed.